Hello and welcome to an extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. My name is Mohid Malik and I am the Projects Assistant at the Phelan U.S. Center. Today I will be speaking to Professor Bernard Barton. Bernard Barton is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. He was the Chief Editor of the Journal of Development Economics from 1985 to 2003, and he is the author of many, many books, I believe 16 books, and the editor of 14 others. But today, we are here to talk about his latest addition to this incredible scholarship, which is his 2023 book, A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. Professor Pranab Barthan, welcome to the ballpark. I suppose one of the first places that we should start is with the title. Um where you emphasize the word insecurity rather than inequality, which is often the place that I think a lot of perhaps, you know, left-wing movements and uh, figures tend to go to. Um, Could you perhaps define that distinction between insecurity and inequality? Sure. Uh, In fact, some of you may remember that there was this big um, Occupy Wall Street movement in the United States, in fact, it started with uh, was in New York, but then it spread out in, in many other cities, not just in the United States, elsewhere as well. Their main uh, protest was against the grotesque level of inequality that uh, has happened in the United States and other countries as well. And the, and the emphasis was in the top 1% vis-a-vis the rest 99%. So that was the extreme inequality they were emphasizing. I'm, I've been trying to understand why there is widespread erosion of democracy all over the world, and certainly in the United States in the Trump period. Um, and in order to understand, I, being an economist, obviously started with inequality, thinking about inequality, and many of my friends uh, have written on inequality. Uh, one of the most well-known is Thomas Piketty. But I started having some doubts. While I'm very much concerned about inequality, uh, I've started having doubts if that is the major reason why workers are angry. I'm, I certainly understand the workers' anger and resentment, which, uh, which, are, which are turning them away from uh, the traditional politics and getting people like Trump and, and in other countries, similar figures. And I think if you talk to workers, you will often find they probably, uh, I, don't, I don't have a clear idea who the top 1% are, how they live, how they accumulate their wealth. Uh, and they are much more worried about the insecurities in their own life. And what do I mean by insecurity? Insecurity, I discuss in my book, two kinds. One is economic insecurity, and the other I call cultural insecurity. I'll come to that later. But economic insecurity is obvious. Uh, Job insecurity, you're not sure if you you will remain in your job. Uh, Income insecurity, uh, if you lose your job or if your wage gets cut. So there's a standard kind of economic insecurity that you are worried about. And sometimes 
you are even if your job is your own job is secure you are not so sure a few years down the road if your children will get good jobs so there is this ins- atmosphere of insecurity which if that worries workers they are not thinking about how the top 1% live they have no idea quite often and how they accumulate their wealth as i said um more than that what what uh, puzzled me is that they were rallying workers are rallying under the banner of of billionaires what do i mean trump is a billionaire a marine le pen in france is a billionaire victor orban in hungary is a billionaire uh going to developing countries uh, erdogan in turkey is a billionaire uh, and so and putin in russia is a billionaire and all these all these leaders that i just mentioned were uh, leading uh, this movement away from democracy erosion of democracy and the leader i left out in in my this list is narendra modi in india he is not wealthy but he is very cozy with billionaires now so if this list if you think about this list of essentially undemocratic leaders leading the politics uh, away from uh, uh, standard procedures of democracy then you ask yourself the question if the workers are really angry about inequality why are they rallying under the banner of these plutocrats so there must be something else going on that's started my thinking looking for what is that something else and that's how i came to insecurity which is in the title of the book but uh, my colleagues and friends in in economics usually emphasize even when they think about insecurity they think about economic insecurity which obviously is very important but that's not the only thing but let, let me give you examples to just tell you what i mean by cultural insecurity uh, i'll give you uh, two examples one from uh, rich countries and one from uh, developing countries rich country the obvious example is immigration workers are very much worried rightly or wrongly about uh, immigrants and immigration can be an economic issue because it has to do with it has some effect on jobs but it's also a cultural issue uh so for example uh immigration in in many countries certainly in the us but also in fact even more in europe they are worried about immigrants because they think immigrants are going to bring uh, they're culturally alien they're bringing cultural standards cultural mores uh that they are not happy about rightly or wrongly again in such a situation it's not just job insecurity it's a situation that you are you feel cultural anxiety um you and i may not worry about that but i'm talking about the the working class in general so that's an example from rich countries immigration is a major issue and and it is not just an economic issue it's a cultural issue let me give you an example from developing countries i could certainly give the example of uh, my own country which is india uh, religion religious tensions 
And why am we calling it a cultural insecurity? Uh, so let me go into some details. Why I include religion uh, and the religious tensions uh, and religious nationalism. So for example, in India, there's Hindu nationalism now. In Turkey, it's um, Islamic nationalism. In Indonesia, it's Islamic nationalism. In Poland, it's Catholic nationalism. In, in Russia, it's Orthodox Church-related uh, Slavic nationalism. In the United States, Trump was mobilizing Christian evangelicals. In Brazil, Bolsonaro uh, was organizing Christian evangelical support. So all, all through, I've given you these examples of religious nationalism, religious majoritarianism. So going back to the Indian case, uh, and, and very similar things elsewhere. Uh, so in the Indian case, uh, so the Hindus' majority is not just majorities, overwhelming majorities, 80% of the population. Muslims is only about 14 to 15% of the population. Yet, there is a manufactured victimhood, manufactured resentment of history that's, that's created. You have seen that in another part of the world, in, in, in Bosnia. Bosnia, the Serbs and the, and the Muslims were at each other's throats. They fought you know, a devastating war. Uh, sometimes it's about historical resentment. Some centuries back, something happened. But why would that be affecting today? The Battle of Kosovo, I think, was always, in, in, the, in the Yugoslav case, that was always exactly. what they hearkened back to, which happened, I think, in the 1400s. Exactly. Yeah. I saw once saw a cartoon in which two guys, one is a Bosnian Serb and the other is a Bosnian Muslim, they're stabbing each other, okay? And one is saying, this is for 1431. And the other is, this is for 1540. It's just absurd. But it is not absurd in their mind. You create. And this is, I think that's what the leaders do. They stoke resentment. Because that's the way they harvest votes out of it. Um, in fact, uh, I, I've seen a study of voting pattern in, of all countries in Austria, in Europe. So the right wing in near Vienna, they stoked memory of Ottoman invasion in Vienna and pillaging in Vienna, around Vienna, in the 16th century. You know, after all these years, and this is an area in which the local people were not worked up about that earlier. But after this right-wing stoking of it, that had an effect on the election. In fact, they turned out, and this is the study showed, that the areas around Vienna, which were pillaged by the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, voted more right-wing than the ones that were not pillaged. So this is a kind of historical anxiety stoked by, this is the same thing the, in, in India, the Hindu nationalists are doing, that this temple was demolished by some Muslim conqueror. And, but why would the Muslims pay for that today, but that's what they're. This this is how of uh, essentially mobilizing uh, a kind of uh, uh, unrealistic anxiety. Same thing about immigrants. 
in 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 the in the uh, Europe, I already talked about cultural anxiety about immigrants. Quite often, it's inflated. So if you the surveys now show, when they ask them, what do you think is the proportion of immigrants in the population? The numbers they usually say many times the actual number. So this is exaggerated fear, and this exaggeration is is helped by the rhetoric of the leaders, these right-wing leaders. So that's why I'm calling this anxiety culture. This is not economic. This, in fact, quite often, the economic anxiety about immigrants is not that relevant because quite often immigrants are doing jobs which the local population is not doing. And many immigrants bring skills which help the local economy. But yet, it's a cultural anxiety. And in the Muslim immigrant case in Europe, there is anxiety about uh, cultural norms, gender norms. The Muslim gender norms uh, that many of the local population do not like. So let me give you the example, the hijab controversy. Uh, in many countries, including in, in India, because in Iran you have the opposite uh, now. Uh, now, why should it matter whether a woman is, you know, covering her hair or not? But it does. It, it's, it's, it's part of an anxiety that these are alien people in some way. So that's what I'm giving all this an example. And let me just add one thing to it. The right-wing intellectuals, particularly in Europe and the United States, have this theory, which is called the Great Replacement Theory. The Great Replacement Theory is that there, there will come a day when these minorities and immigrants are going to outnumber us. And I, I, that is in Europe and the, and the uh, United States. You may have heard about the Great Replacement Theory. I'll now give you an example from India, which is very similar. They don't call it Great Replacement. So Hindus are 80%, but many Hindus think that there will come a time when Muslims will outnumber them. So if you ask them, why do you think so? 80%, 14%, 14%? You'll say, no, no, the Muslim, look at the Muslim fertility, uh, Muslim woman's fertility rate, which is higher than the Hindu. Then I point out to them, look, if you take the different parts of India, so the, in South India, there is a state named Kerala. And that state is one of the highest education level, average, highest education level than compared to many other states. So I tell them, I, I've told many people in India that if you look at the Average Muslim woman's fertility rate in, in Kerala is much lower than the average Hindu woman's fertility elsewhere. So that tells you that it's the mother's education level which is the primary determinant of fertility, her fertility, not the religion. Because the Hindu fertility is higher when it's, the woman is are more uh, uneducated than compared to the Kerala woman. But this, this, the right-wing leaders will not point this out. They will talk about, oh, the higher fertility, they're going to be outnumbered. So these are, I'm saying, these are kind of manufactured victimhood of the majority as an example of cultural insecurity. Thank you for that overview. I, I want to go into, I guess, that the leap between facts and what how things actually are and the way that narratives are construed. And... I um in in your book, you make a really interesting point. I think early on, uh, and I'm going to quote now where it's written: 
The more important left versus right distinction and opinions may have to do with the fact that economic insecurity was often intertwined with cultural insecurity, which the right was in a better position to exploit. If we turn to, I mean, it could be really any country, but, you know, in the United States, for instance, do you think that the established parties, so the Democratic Party and the Republican parties, do they contribute to this feeling of insecurity? And, and why is it that right-wing parties tend to be in a better position to exploit these insecurities than, um, you know, what could be called left-wing or, or liberal parties? In fact, that is the puzzle uh, which started me in writing this book. The puzzle is, if you think about uh, inequality and if you think about economic insecurity, these are traditional left-wing issues. Why are workers turning right? So that is a puzzle in my mind which made me start writing, thinking about writing this book. Why are workers, if inequality and economic insecurity is the main issue? And that's how I came to cultural insecurity. And in a sense, um, there, in understanding that, now I've, I talk about this in my book, but let me just mention three or four factors. One is, in some sense, not so much in the United States, but in Europe, and, and I would say even in Turkey and India, extreme right people are taking care not to take away some of the pro-poor welfare measures. If you take France, Marine Le Pen, who's an extreme right-wing leader, is very much in favor of the welfare state. The same with the AFD, which is the extreme right-wing party in Germany, is in favor of the welfare state. Um, Poland, CIS, I think it's PIS party, which is the extreme right-wing party, which is the ruling party now, Catholic Nationalist Party. Uh, they, in fact, are not merely supporting welfare state, they are in increasing child assistance policies uh, which are very popular in Poland. And this is where the, con the main exception on, in this, what are the kind of examples I'm giving, is the United States. United States, the right-wing Republicans, as you know probably from recent times, in pandemic time, uh, Biden introduced these child help, child assistance policies, which actually substantially reduce child poverty. Um, in the United States. And by now, the Republican Congress is taking them away. The same child assistance policies, extreme right-wing in Poland, are very much pushing. So, with the exception, with the possible exception of the United States, in the other, area, other areas, right-wing, in some senses, is stealing the wind out of the sails of the left because they, they push welfare measures. Second issue that I want to talk about, one of the reasons this is happening in my judgment, and I talk about that quite a bit in my book, is that traditionally, the organizations which used to resist the right-wing extremism are the trade unions. Trade unions in many countries, particularly in the rich countries, played an important role historically against uh, when the Capitalists become too exorbitant in trade unions resist. But also culturally, this is the economic role. Culturally, trade unions have a, had a, played a role in taming and transcending 
xenophobia, racial passions, things like that. Because they know that those kind of things distract from, the, from their uh, uh, goal of uh, improving the lot of workers. For various reasons, and if you want, I can go into the reasons, but let me not go them right now. Various reasons, trade unions are in decline all over the world. In United States is in really an example of, uh, in fact, not merely they're on decline, they're certainly on decline. But of all rich countries, if you ask me which country uh, is, is probably the most anti-union, is United States. And so with the decline and the unimportance of unions, this traditional resistance to these passions, whether it's xenophobia, whether it's anti-minority, those cultural, uh, the resistance to these cultural uh, issues are much weaker now because of the unions are weaker. So that's the second point. The first was, was about taking the wind out of the sail of left. The second point I'm making is the decline of uh, the decay of trade unions is has something to do with. Third, you will see these right-wing leaders always talk about they're against the elite, which appeal to a lot of people. Oh, you know, we are poor people and they're against the elite, even though they're billionaires, uh, but they're against the elite. But then you have to think one more step. Which elite are they talking about? Which elite are the uh, right-wing leaders talking about? Not the financial elite, because they themselves belong to the financial elite. As I told you, they're billionaires, so they belong to the financial elite. So essentially, they turn the attention, uh, the opposition, from the financial elite to the cultural elite, the liberal elite. Why? What they say is the liberal elite, which appease the minorities. It's the liberal elite which support immigration. So, in a sense, the anger has they have deflected the anger, the, the usual grievances that workers have against capitalists, their bosses, they have diverted it to cultural elite, the, the appeasement. So, in a sense, this is reflected in the immigration policies. Because if Earlier, trade unions to resist, uh, not all trade unions, but many trade unions is to resist xenophobia. But now, it's come back. This anti-immigration, etc. is part of that xenophobia. So, in my judgment, the, the right wing has succeeded in dominating the cultural narrative, which I think the left and the liberals uh, not merely lost out, they're not paying enough attention to. And one of the reasons of my writing my book is to is really making a plea to the left and the liberals that please pay attention not just to inequality, not just to job losses, which are important issues, but also the cultural narrative getting away from it, from you. And one aspect of this cultural narrative brings me back to something that I've already talked about, these various kinds of nationalism particularly religious nationalism. I talked about Hindu nationalism, I talked about Islamic nationalism, I talked about uh, Catholic nationalism in Poland, Slavic uh, Orthodox Church nationalism, Christian evangelical nationalism. What it does, again, this is something the left and the liberals are 
ceding too much ground to the opposition. Why? Because the left and liberal elite talk about class issues. They don't talk about this cultural issue. When it comes to nationalism, as if this is the only kind of nationalism. Religious nationalism is not the only kind of nationalism. To give you an example, I mean, I'll go to United States history. American history, to me, is a great example of a different kind of nationalism. Uh, let me first, uh, I quote this in my book. In 2009, uh, let me quote a, from a speech from Barack Obama at that time, president at that time. So Barack Obama, in a speech, said, it's a great strength of the United States that it is not a Christian nation. Our nationalism is based on, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, our nationalism is based on values, constitutional values, values enshrined in the Constitution. So then I immediately, so when I heard that speech, two things came to my mind. It is very significant. If you think about the founding, founders of the American Constitution, going back to the end of the 18th century, this is a time of religion all around. But the founders of the American Constitution did not emphasize Christianity. They emphasized liberty, equality, fraternity, not fraternity so much, but liberty and equality. If you read just a few decades later, Abraham Lincoln's famous Gettysburg speech, what is the first line of that speech? A nation conceived in liberty and with the idea that all men are created equal. This is the liberty and equality issue. They're not talking about religion. They're not talking about God. Even though they're all religious people, they're God-fearing people. But their basis of nationalism was not God, was not Christianity. To me, that's very important. So they tried to, you see, American nationalism, the way it came about after the, they violently decimated the native population, later it became a country of a nation of immigrants. Diverse parts of the world, a nation of immigrants. How do you put them together? Essentially, some values, which is what Obama is referring to. And these values were enshrined in the Constitution, like liberty, equality, etc. The other country, and, and this I, I will here say a positive thing, I said negative things about Indian nationalism. Uh, so in India, when the partition happened, in a sense, if you think about it, Mr. Jinnah was emphasizing, and that's how Pakistan was formed, Mr. Jinnah was emphasizing nationalism based on religion, which Gandhi did not accept. Uh, Gandhi is a highly Hindu religious person, but he did not want nationalism based on religion. He realized that like United States, India historically is a country of diverse people, different kinds of people. Only way you can keep them together and give them a sense of purpose is if your nationalism, they are nationalists because they are fighting the British. So they were anti-imperialists and in national, nationalists in that sense. But they wanted to base their nationalism, this by the way, I, I, in fact in my book I give some quotation from two uh, thinkers of India, 
One is Gandhi and the other is Tagore. And the quotations go like this. said, of course we will be nationalists, but our nationalism cannot be of the Western type. Where it's based on either on religion or in language or ethnicity. So take the case, German case. German nationalism for which Germany had to pay a huge price under Nazis is based on blood. Ethnicity was the base form of nationalism. And Gandhi and Tagore said, no, 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 we cannot take base because that then be violence, there will be enormous disorder in the country. And the uh, whereas our domestic tradition is one of plurality, one of uh, syncretic. And I'll give it, give, give, uh, there are a lot of Hindu examples. Let me give you a Muslim example. Muslim um, has, even Muslim religion, a lot of strands. One of the major strands and very much true in the subcontinent is Sufis, Sufi tradition. And Sufi tradition of combining they don't, they're not saying there's only one God you can worship. They're, even when they say that Allah is the only God, they will try to combine various cultural strands, which is different from the non-Sufi Muslim. So it is very interesting. Sufi, Sufism was quite important in Iran also. But Indian Muslim tradition in a very significant way is Sufi. And Gandhi in, in one of his uh, autobiography, uh, autobiographical pieces, he says his mother, who was a very religious person, used to take him to the Hindu temple. But that Hindu temple uh, in, the, in, the, in the raised platform had three holy books. One is the Gita, which is the Hindu holy book. One is the Quran and was the Bible. All together in a highly Hindu religious temple. So Gandhi was emphasizing, this is how I grew up. That's what he said in the autobiography. I cannot have just uh, saying that it's the only one holy book. There are many holy books in the world. There are many ways, you know, if you want salvation, you can, religious salvation, you can have it in many different ways. So my point is this, that the reason people like Gandhi rejected Mr. Jinnah's religion-based nationalism which is not just Mr. Jinnah's, as I said, uh, ethnicity-based religion or just single principle of uh, nationalism. They rejected that. In fact, um, many people thought the contrasting point of the Hindu nationalism, Hindu nationalism, by the way, is quite old too. Uh, this RSS is the organization which is very highly, it's kind of Hindu bigotry organization of Hindu bigotry was established 100 years back. Which country inspired them? Their leaders used to be inspired by the German case, based on single ethnicity. And many of the others, the non-RSS, the, non, the, the Congress leaders at that time in India rejected that, that we cannot go by German type of nationalism. In fact, in my book, I referred to a whole uh, set of lectures Tagore gave in Japan in 1916, and that came out later as a book, which is, I read it when I was in college, uh, undergraduate. Uh, in that lecture, what is he telling the Japanese? He says, look, you are, you are Japanese at that time are copying the German in many ways, including their nationalism. 
And and Tagore warned the Japanese, this is the wrong kind of nationalism you are adopting. So it's, it is this debate between different kinds of nationalism is today is very relevant. Because you can say that all these other religious nationalism that I mentioned of various countries, there's an alternative. And I gave the example of, uh, I've called it in my book, civic nationalism, not, which is not based on this. Civic nationalism, I think the major historical examples are United States and India in the first few decades, not now. Uh, and now, uh, uh, and and this is a relation with and uh, uh, Hindu nationalism has has trying to remove dismantle that kind of pluralist tradition, and as a result, democracy is declining in India. So, to me, the uh, it is very important to emphasize for left and liberals don't discuss these issues. Keep on discussing economic issues, but that's not enough. Let me give you an example from a. Something that you will, as soon as I give you the metaphor, you will see that is something similar to what I just now said. So if you think of soccer, just think of the last year's World Cup, okay? Particularly in Europe, when the, when the whole team stood up, half the team in many of these countries were either minorities or immigrants or different ethnicity than the majority, okay? Why am I mentioning it? Here is a case, that country, like, let me take the French team. French team is probably more than half minorities, um, immigrants, okay? Yet, the French white working class is very proud of their team. They will be, do anything for Mbappe, right? <laughs> and Mbappe is an ethnic minority in France, okay? Why am I emphasizing this? You can generate national pride and yet, Celebrate their diversity. I'll give, give you another football example. Um, in this country, Liverpool Football Club, one of the most popular players is Mohamed Saleh, who is from Egypt. Okay? And, but he scores a prolific scorer of goals, right? So I read somewhere and I quote it in my book. So the, the days when Saleh plays from this huge stadium, and largely full of white working class fans of Liverpool Football Club, they roar a chant. And the chant goes like this, if I remember right. If he scores another few, then I will be Muslim too. Can you imagine largely a white working class celebrating this diversity because they feel pride? So this is my example of that if you, you, do, you don't have to give up on nationalism. Just as earlier I was talking about, you don't have to give up on religion. You just say, this is, my religion is where, just like the Sufis, combining rather than excluding. Inclusive religion rather than exclusive religion. Similarly, I'm now saying nationalism need not be exclusive. Nationalism may be uh, inclusive, and celebrating diversity. And this is what left and liberals do not pay enough attention to. Do you think, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of this, it's new and, it, and it's not new. You know, like it's, it's, we tend to go through these cycles. 
the 20th century was wrought with obviously the most violent forms of nationalism and that it was in that century that a lot of this was born. Maybe even you could say in the late 1800s as well. But uh, my point is, is that, you know, there's a, it almost feels like, I don't want to sound primordial, but there, there are very obviously there's, there's this, there's this appeal of some type of ethnic nationalism that just, that persists, you know, it might go away for decades, which, which was the case following world war two, but then, you know, there's, there, the roots are quite deep. And I just, I'm trying to think in terms of the, the left wing perspective in terms of, you know, in the United States with Democrats, you know, how, how do, why is it like, you know, how do you capitalize on that to prevent it from devolving into, from preventing civic nationalism to devolving something into something that's more ethnic? And couldn't one also argue, for instance, in the, in the American case that, you know, if you really look at its history, even the, the civic nationalism, it, it was quite enmeshed within a broader, you know, ethnic conception of the United States. Because of course, as you know, various groups were excluded from this civic conception. When I mention American civic nationalism, I don't say it's it's perfect or it, it had a lot of rap lapses, mainly racial, um, racially motivated lapses. There's no doubt about it. But I'm talking about the idea of nationalism. That the, in the formation of the idea of nationalism, Christianity did not enter. Unlike in some of the other countries, which based on it. But once you have that, then then of course, so in a sense, it is possible. To make, of course, the white racism was there all, all along, but essentially, in which due direction you channelize people's creative energies is very important. And because the racism, underlying racism or underlying religious bigotry, don't go away, but you have to channelize it. So, you know, that's why I'm saying the, the when I give the Liverpool Football Club example, they become proud of something else. And they can proud, they may be anti-Muslim in some of the other aspects, but at least they're channelized into celebrating diversity. To, my, to me, that's very important. And going back, you are very right that these things, the cycles, and the major example is Germany. Germany, uh, when it went into Nazism, it went from a liberal kind of nationalism to Nazi type of nationalism. And then devastation happened, and then they went to liberal nationalism. Okay? In fact, there's a German uh, scholar, German philosopher, I cite in my book, his name is um, uh, Habermas. And Habermas coined the term constitutional patriotism. And that's related to what I'm calling civic nationalism. He's saying, and this is, by the way, has an uh, as an implication for immigration policy. Let me uh, make it make that clear. He's saying that we should accept everybody, immigrants included, as long as they observe the liberal principles of our constitution. That's what he's calling constitutional patriots. To give you an example from other, earlier I was talking about the Muslim immigrants culture norms, which the, the local population sometimes object to. So Habermas is saying, uh, Habermas did not give that example, I'm giving that example. Habermas is saying, I should accept or we should accept any of the norms that the immigrants are bringing 
as long as they are consistent with our liberal principles of the constitution. Okay. I'm giving, uh, he didn't give this example. Let me give you the example. So Habermas, if, if that is true, Habermas should not be against the hijab. Because wearing the hijab has nothing against, you can be a liberal and still wear the hijab. Okay. So nothing is not inconsistent with the liberal principles of the constitution. But if you, if you've heard about the practice in some countries of genital mutilation, that's against the liberal principle. So if the immigrant practices geni genital mutilation, that is a no-no. That's not accepted. Whereas if the address-wise, it is accepted. So Habermas is finding a way, is modifying the immigration policy. In a way, this modifying multiculturalism. Sometimes multiculturalism is, is interpreted as anything goes. You have that culture, your and I have another culture. There is a mocking description of multiculturalism, which I quote in my book, as if multiculturalism is liberalism for the liberals, cannibalism for the cannibals. Sabinas is not accepting. He said, whichever, you can have your culture, but it has to be consistent with the liberal principles in the constitution. To me, that can diffuse some of the tension about immigrants. As long as you show that the immigrants' norms and principles are not violating the, the constitutional norms that are already adopted in the country, then those practices can be there. And that way, you can see, diffuse some of the tensions against immigrants. I'm just giving that as an example. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I suppose this will be the final question. I just want to end on, um, if we were to look into the future a bit, as hard as it might be, I think one of the fundamental points that you have made and, and I think is the most telling is the fact that this seems to be quite universal. Um, and I think that's what makes it a, a bit scary is that, you know, if it was just in one place, it's a bit easier to sort of explain. But if it's happening in rich and poor countries, like you said, in very different cultural contexts, then it, it becomes uh, that much more difficult to deal with. But do you think, given the the hegemonic role that the United States plays both culturally and politically and economically that the U.S., if it, it can kind of set the tone in terms of the direction that perhaps other countries go in, whether it will be towards this majoritarianism or towards a more civic, you know, liberal, I suppose, conception of nationalism. Do you think that the United States can have that kind of influence? And are you hopeful that in the future, this sort of democratic disenchantment can wane? You know, some, I actually quote a, a passage from the Italian uh, left intellectual Antonio Gramsci. He was in Mussolini's prison, very despondent about what's going to happen, the Italian fascism, period of Italian fascism. He said, uh, he talked about, which I quote in my book, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I wish certain things happen, but it may not happen. My intellect tells me that may not happen. So in, in my book, that's prevailing attitude is that I don't have any illusion some of these things will happen. Good things will happen. But we should go on pushing for it. It does not mean that we should give up. Having taken, I mean, that's the general attitude of the book. So I, I have no illusion that, or in fact, second half of the book is about things that could be done. 
I talk about rejuvenation of social democracy. But your question is specifically the United States giving the leadership. I think one, one of the things in, in terms of what should be done in my book is, for example, about improving the voice of workers in running the companies, in uh, trade unions. And I give the example, German example of all places. Germany has a long history of what are called works councils. So in Germany today, if you visit any large companies, the top governing board, half of them are workers, representatives. And that as not improves the voice of the workers. And in fact, as a result, women get more represented in the company governing board. But it has also good economic effects. And that is that they have shown that when you give workers some autonomy and dignity and voice, then productivity improves. We now have evidence. In my book, I cite that evidence. So capitalists will gain by being labor-friendly. And this is what, where I think United States, the reason I may give that example, this is a direction, United States, which is so much anti-union. Capitals are very much anti-union in the United States. Not all, but some. And they have to be persuaded that being labor-friendly can increase your profits, increase productivity, and will not hurt your profits. I think this persuasion is very important to do. Uh, and, and, and the left and liberals can help in that persuasion by actual creating a cooperation between capital and labor. I call this kind of effort saving capitalism from capitalists. Because capitalists quite often are much too short-run oriented. Uh, next quarter's earnings. But if you help laborers improve working conditions, maybe it will cost you a little in the short run. But in the long run, workers' productivity will improve. You will make money. So, in fact, if you ask me in one sentence, in terms of policy, what I'm aiming at, one is saving capitalists. Saving capitalism from capitalists. And politically, I'm trying to save democracy from majoritarians. Because majoritarians think they are Democrats because they won elections, right? But elections are important, but they're not the most important thing about democracy. Democracy is about rights, human rights. Rights of minorities, very, very important part of democracy. Rights of minority was recognized by the U.S. Constitution. But if you know, in the end of 18th century. Um, so I think in both of these, US, if it really applies its mind to, because US provides leadership all over the world, is saving capitalists from saving capitalism from short-run interests of capitalists. Similarly, saving democracy from majority. Well, let's hope they can do that. Professor Bartholm, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you to Professor Bernard Barthon for joining us on this extra inning of The Ballpark. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice and you'll find us. We're free to listen to and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback you have at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. 
or you can send us a tweet at LSE underscore US. And please, if you'd like, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Please.